Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 17. We'll actually begin one verse back into chapter 16, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and will make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return, except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your holy word, and I ask you to guide me today as I uh, take us through this chapter. Fill me with your spirit that I might articulate these things clearly. Fill us all with your spirit that we might hear them and receive them. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. I am a big sucker for nature documentaries. I love, I love wildlife photography and wildlife films. And uh, one thing that I've noticed, I've, I'm, I'm watching the new uh, The Planet Earth series 2, kind of making my way through that. Old nature films, every once in a while you'd get some kind of predator chasing a prey, but ordinarily it'd be like, look, there's a monkey. Look at that monkey. Uh, he's eating a kumquat. You know, he's sitting on a branch, eating a kumquat. Look at that monkey. Ain't that great? Ain't that grand? Look at this, look at this giraffe. He's eating those leaves, so peaceful, so tranquil, this giraffe. These new ones, they're dramatic. They're heavy. They're deep. They create this narrative. And usually it starts with some animal starving, right? And, then, and, and this poor forlorn animal uh, trying to uh, feed its young. Well, I was watching one of these uh, uh, several weeks ago, and the narrative centered on a starving lioness who was hunting to feed her cubs in a situation that was growing increasingly desperate. If she couldn't catch an antelope to feed her cubs, her cubs, these cute little baby lions, would likely die. So the film was dramatically edited and scored with music in such a way that over several minutes you grow more and more sympathetic with the lions. And, and when they finally come up on an antelope that is straggled behind the herd, you're elated. Ah, finally food for the baby, the baby lions. And the, the cubs are going to eat and they're going to be fine. And they're going to survive. But as it turns out, the antelope escapes just at the last second. And then the cubs are going to go hungry another day. You find out and the sun sets and the music plays and you see the silhouette of the lioness against the sunset trotting away into the evening as a violin plays a mournful tune. And it was all terribly, terribly depressing and all terribly sad and awful. And why am I watching this? <laughs> However, had the documentary been about antelopes, I would have been extremely happy. <laughs> If, if we had learned about this antelope family for the last 20 minutes, that would have been a victorious moment, right? The, the antelope escaped. I would feel joy that this sweet, this sweet deer creature escaped from the angry, terrible predator. In both cases, we would be shown the exact same dramatic moment. We would be shown the exact same thing. The lion chasing the antelope and the antelope getting away. But because of the other filters, because of the story that we were being told and the story that we had uh, in place, the way that we choose to interpret those events would 
have significant impact on our emotional response. So in other words, we see the same event, but depending upon our narrative about that event, we would have two very different responses, whether we're happy for the lion or happy for the antelope. You see, it's not simply the thing that we see. It's not simply the thing that happens to us. It's not just the thing that we hear or the experiences we go through or the, or the things that we're exposed to. It's not just those things outside of us that make us happy or sad, elated or downcast. It's not simply these external things, but it is our interpretation of those events. When things happen to us or things are said to us or done to us, we add our beliefs, our background, the things we value, our theology, our narrative, the story of what we believe is going on in the world. We add all of this together with our experiences, and it's that combination that produces anger or contentment. It's that that creates bitterness or rest, sorrow or joy. Not simply the thing that happens to you, but how you choose to fit it within your story. That is what produces joy or sorrow. We're going to see this in contrast today in the lives of two people in 2 Samuel. Bad things are happening all over the place here. There's no break in this section of 2 Samuel. Everything appears to be disintegrating. But people respond in starkly different ways. Again, not simply based on a clinical, unbiased report of what's happening, that's, that's not what changes their response, but how they interpret those events and how they see themselves fitting into the story. That's what makes them joyful or bitter. Remember where we are and remember how we got here. A very quick recap. David's son, Absalom, was frustrated with how his father handled several critical events. He felt his father mishandled the sin of his brother, Amnon. So, so Absalom took matters into his own hands. He had his servants kill Amnon, surprise him and kill him. And then Absalom fled to go stay with his Gentile grandparents. Absalom considered his father weak and passive. And so in, in the meantime, Absalom has engineered an uprising. He's made it appear that all of David's biggest supporters, and he's made it look like all of Israel, is on Absalom's side. In addition to uh, some uh, of David's closest men, Absalom has one key figure who has pledged allegiance to him. That is Ahitophel. That is David's closest senior advisor. Ahitophel is with Absalom. Now this is key and it's going gonna, it's gonna to color everything that we're about to hear and everything that we're going to uh, read about today. In response to this, David leaves Jerusalem. He doesn't want to engage in bloody combat against his son where his brethren, the sons of Israel, his friends, his countrymen are going to die over what amounts to a family spat. David's not going to put the kingdom through that. He's not going to put Jerusalem or Israel through that. So he leaves honorably. He leaves and he leaves all the women of the palace behind. He leaves the Ark of the Covenant, even though the priests want to bring it out. He says, no, send it back. Go back. The priests and their sons. He says, go back. You serve as my eyes and ears, especially the sons of the priests are going to be his spies back in Jerusalem. And then he sends his, his other close friend, his other counselor, Hushai. He sends him back into Jerusalem and he says, you go back and pledge your allegiance to Absalom 
and work to undermine the advice of Ahithophel. Because Ahithophel's the wisest man in the land, he's got great things to say, and, and, and this is really going to go bad if everybody listens to him. It's going to go bad for me because he knows uh, what good strategy looks like. He knows what needs to happen, and you need to go back there at Hushai and subvert his counsel. So Absalom comes into Jerusalem as a conquering king, and Absalom establishes his rule. Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, directs Absalom, priority number one, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, what you need to do is you need to set up a tent on the roof of the king's palace and take all of David's concubines in there one at a time. Right in the sight of all Israel, I want you to take your father's concubines into this tent. The proof is, the, the point of this is to, to prove Absalom's virility, to prove his power in contrast to David's weakness. The point is, if David can't protect his women, then he can't protect the kingdom. He can't do anything. And, and that's exactly what Absalom does. He, he takes his father's concubines into the tent and he commits a sin that's worthy of the death penalty in Israel. Well, that's where we left off last week. And we had that little comment, and I didn't spend a lot of time on it last week, and I started this week with this reading. We, we get that commentary on the authority of Ahithophel. And, and this is what it says. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. The word of Ahithophel is as rock solid and as trustworthy as the word of God. If you're listening to Ahithophel, you're listening to God. That's the confidence everybody has in his counsel. Now, Priority one was the thing with the tent and the concubines. What's priority two? Next thing on the agenda. What's coming up now? Well, we need to go pursue and kill David in the wilderness. Here's the plan that Ahithophel puts forward. He says, we're going to take 12,000 men. I'm going to choose who they are. I'm going to take 12,000 men out tonight, and we're going to hit David while he's weak. Before he's crossed the Jordan River, we're going to hit him. David has only uh, 600 men, and those 600 men have brought their wives and children with them. Ahithophel says, if we show up with 12,000 men, everybody who is with David is going to flee. It's going to be chaos, and we're going to find David, and we're going to strike him, and we're only going to kill David. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to kill him. And then once we've taken care of David, everybody's going to go home, and everything's going to be fine. We'll, we'll have peace, and Absalom, you'll be the king, and that will settle it. Now, there's 12,000 men Ahithophel mentions. That's not a random number. It suggests that all of Israel is going to go out against David. A thousand men from each tribe, 12,000, representative number. And so rather than having this long, drawn-out civil war, let's just go out tonight and get this over with, Absalom. That's his advice. Now understand, this rebellion that they're plotting is not just against this dad of Absalom that he's real aggravated at. I mean, that's, this is not just a, a, a dad who has made a series of bad decisions. This plot, is a propose, uh, 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 this plot as proposed is a deliberate, directed attack against God's anointed king. David is the man that God has appointed to lead Israel. Uh, now, when David was in this position of having Saul, whom he always disagreed with, Saul made life a living hell for David, but David was always clear on the boundaries of what he could do and what he couldn't do, what he could say and what he couldn't say. And David was always very clear not to dishonor the office of the king, not to dishonor the office of God's anointed. So David never crossed that line. And even when he came close, when he cut off the hedge of his robe, he repented with tears and he cried out and he asked for his forgiveness. 
So, so David was always clear that the man appointed and ordained by Yahweh is somebody that you don't want to, you don't want to mess with him. You don't want to kill him. But Ahithophel and Absalom don't have any scruples. The way they talk here is like, yeah, we're just going to go out and we're just going to kill him. And that's going to be it. So uh, remember that David had prayed that the Lord would undermine Ahithophel's counsel, that, 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 that God would overthrow his counsel because he knew how uh, sharp and how clear he thought. And that's, if you wanted to wrap this up, really, that's the way to do it. You would follow Ahithophel's advice. But, but David sent his friend Hushai back into town to swear his allegiance and do whatever he could to oppose Ahithophel. So now we see Hushai doing just that. Let's pick up in verse 5. Then Abraham said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us, let us hear what he has to say too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, The advice that Ahithophel has given you is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there's a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sand of the multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and of all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So what does Hushai say? He says, look, uh, 12,000 men is not enough to get your dad. You, you think you want to take 12,000 men to go capture David? You don't know David. You need to call all of the fighting men of Israel together. You need the biggest army that we have ever put on a field of battle. Hushai's speech is so much more eloquent and illustrative than Ahithophel's. He says, David and his men are enraged in their mind like a mama bear robbed of her cubs. Now, David is not enraged in his mind. We just read last week the psalm that he wrote when he was in the wilderness. He's not enraged. He's not like a, a bear robbed of her cubs. That's not his that's not his mentality. But that's the picture that Hushai is painting. He's out there somewhere in a pit just waiting for you. He's waiting, wait. It's like, he's like some elusive ninja who's out there just waiting to, to take out the army one at a time, just pick them off. Um, his heart is like a lion, he says. And Hushai refers back to David's wilderness years. David is so experienced at this sort of thing. He kept, he kept Saul at bay all those years. Remember that? And now he has these 600 mighty men with him. Not just any men, but hard, scar-faced, battle-seasoned warriors. David is a shrewd military strategist. He's out there expecting an attack. And so he's going to be hidden far away from his army. Hushai's just been with David. He knows David is with his army. He knows David's not way away. But this is, again, uh, the, the picture that he's painting. He's laying it on really thick. <clears throat> so no, Absalom, a force of 12,000 fighting men is not big enough. You need an army like the sand of the sea. Let's go get all the fighting men of Israel. Well, what's Hushai doing? He's buying time. That's what he's doing. He's stalling. 
If he can just buy David a few more days, then David will get far enough out of Absalom's reach that he'll never find him. One other thing uh, uh, Hushai says is, Absalom, you need to go in person, you brave war hero, you mighty man. So it's not just that we need to kill him. We need to kill everyone with him. And you need to be the champion of the battlefield when that happens. And, and Hushai is playing to Absalom's pride here. He knows that Absalom is a rash, violent, angry man who is a counterfeit holy warrior. What has Absalom done so far? Well, he had his servants kill his brother. He had some servants burn his cousin's field. Remember that? He burned Joab's field. Um, but Absalom's never been in a real war. So, but, but Hushai knows that this kind of thing, this kind of drama and romance is going to appeal to Absalom. And, and then you can just see Absalom wondering and thinking already how he's going to do his hair for the victory parade. He's already got this all worked out. And he's already, he's already thought forward to this next step. By playing to Absalom's vanity, Hushai gives David time, and he's going to have time to give David a heads up and, and give David a place to make his own stand if he needs to. Well, Absalom loves Hushai's advice, and he ignores the advice of Ahithophel. Verse 14, so Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For, for Yahweh had proposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that Yahweh might bring disaster on Absalom. Now, all this time, things have been going Absalom's way. But at this point, it begins to unravel because Yahweh has purposed to undermine the counsel of Ahithophel. Practically speaking, again, if you wanted to be pragmatic here, if you wanted to be effective, you would follow Ahithophel's advice. His plan makes the most sense. But since Absalom is morally compromised, since Absalom is in full rebellion against his father and against his God, God purposely sends Absalom confusing, contradictory, bad advice that's going to lead to his ruin. God intends to bring disaster to Absalom, so he blinds him. And he, he says, you're not going to be able to listen to wisdom. And he turns Absalom over to folly. So Absalom, you want to live an upside down world? Go ahead. This is what it looks like. And, and you're going to follow this all the way to your own destruction. Well, before, before Absalom has a chance to put this plan in place, we have a little bit of espionage and we have a little bit of intrigue. To, to help us keep all the names straight again, Zadok and Abiathar are the priests that David left in Jerusalem. And their sons are David's close friends, his close companions, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. They're David's friends who are there to report on things to David. Uh, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, the, the sons, are staying outside the city. They're outside of the spotlight so that when it comes time to get news to David, nobody's going to follow them because everybody knows that they're good friends of the king, but, but they're staying out of the way. And so when it comes time for them to get word to David, nobody's going to follow them and give up David's position. So now we see this uh, priestly spy network in action, beginning in verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, do not spend the night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimahaz, these are the sons, stayed in Rogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. 
So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. They went down into the well. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, They've gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass, after they departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now, despite their careful planning and despite setting up this plan for getting word to David, a young boy still sees these two friends of David. He recognizes them and he runs and tells Absalom. So the two sons of the priest, they go out and they're pursued by Absalom's men. And so in order to evade capture, the sons of the priest have to hide in a well. What does that remind you of? Well, it reminds you of the spies hiding in Jericho, doesn't it? and how Rahab protected them. Rahab hid the spies under grain on her roof. And now another woman hides these spies under grain in a well. You see, so far we've seen Absalom as a murderer. We've seen him as a serpent. We've seen him as an arrogant young man. We've seen him incestuous with his father's concubines. But now, thematically, he's being compared to the king of Jericho. If the righteous are hiding again, if women have to hide the righteous, it means that the land is in danger of becoming Canaanite again under Absalom's rule. And this land will need to be conquered by a new Joshua. This also means that just as surely as the walls of Jericho came straight down, so will the teetering walls of Absalom's kingdom come down just as surely. They will fall just as flat. Now we read about the uh, tragic end of Ahithophel, verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and he put his household in order, and he hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Uh, This is chilling. This is so clinical and methodical and understated. Why did he think that this was the only option left to him? He goes home, he sets his affairs in order, and he hangs himself. This is Ahithophel. Sure, his his advice was rejected, but was this really necessary? He he obviously felt as if he had lost all respect. He didn't feel like anybody was going to listen to him anymore. He probably also knew that Hushai's plan was going to be fatal for Absalom, which means that Ahithophel had picked the wrong side. He, He went with Absalom when he should have stayed with David. But all of this, while it may be true, doesn't mean that his life is over. It doesn't mean that his effectiveness in the kingdom is over. It's likely that he could have been forgiven and restored if he had repented to David. Uh, this is really sad and gut-wrenching, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this in just a moment because I want to focus on, on how Ahithophel is processing all this and contrast it with David. Um, Uh, At the end of the chapter, we get a note about Absalom, and then we catch up to David here. So let's pick up in verse uh, 24. Um, David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the sons of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. 
This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. I thought about spending some time this morning unpacking all that biological data. I think I'm going to leave that to you. It's a little bit tricky. Um, we don't, this Amasa that Absalom appoints instead of Joab. Absalom uh, feels real bitter over the way Joab has handled things, so he replaces him with Amasa. And we get a little biological data from, we get a little family tree about this Amasa. It could be Absalom's cousin, uh, but it's a little puzzling how this um, how his family tree is mapped out there. Uh, but if you want to talk about that more, we can talk about it later, and I'll give you some of the uh, insights or maybe thoughts about that if you are interested in that sort of thing. But the bottom line is, is that Absalom replaces Joab as captain of the, of the army. So um, let's, let's finish now with, uh, with, with, um, verse, um, with verse 27. <clears throat> now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobi, the son of Naosh from Rabbah, of the people of Ammon, Machir, and the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought, beads, uh, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd, for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness." So um, how much of David's life to this point has been uh, spent in exile, avoiding madmen, avoiding tyrants, and those who seek him harm? Even, even when Saul died, David still had to wait for God to deal with Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And now toward the end of his life, David has to go through all this all over again. You think, okay, Lord, I've got this lesson. I know what it's like to run from crazy people. I know what it's like to run from, from people who, who seek my life and seek my harm. But now David, as an older man, is right back where he started, in a way. And yet here we see, again, David here in exile being pursued by his own people, his son. And even while he's in this position, David is not friendless. He is not provisionless. God is protecting and feeding and encouraging David in the wilderness. Where does David go? He goes to Mahanaim. This is the same place where Jacob stopped on his return from Laban when he was going to face uh, Esau. And he was trying to figure out how he's going to work out his conflict with Esau. This is near where Jacob wrestled with the Lord. This is where David rests uh, with his people. And so David uh, rests there in that same place and he is fed by Gentiles. While David's family is seeking to destroy him, his own son is seeking to destroy him, the Gentiles receive David. Uh, these are Ammonites, the people here who, who are watching and keeping and feeding and taking care of David. These are Israel's former bitter enemies who are now attending to his needs. They feed him honey and curds. What is that? That's milk and honey, which apparently you can't get back in the promised land anymore. But David is fed here by these Gentiles. These movements of David away from the camp, away from safety in Israel, away from the city of Jerusalem, this, paralyzed, uh, this parallels Jesus' own exile. Jesus goes out bearing the sins of the world. David goes out bearing the shame and the exile of Israel. And it's not until the king is restored, it's not until the king is on his throne that we're going to have peace. While the king is suffering, we suffer under tyrants. And, and so it's only when 
the, the king is restored, that the land is restored. And so for us, we languish under tyrants and oppressors unless the lordship of Jesus is established over us. Well, with this time that we have left, I, I do want to rewind the tape just a little bit. And I want to spend some time on Ahithophel for just a moment and his tragic decision to take his own life. And I want to compare that with David's perseverance in the face of arguably worse tragedy, much, much worse tragedy. When you compare David and Ahithophel, who's had the worst two weeks? Who's, who's had it rougher over the past several days? The answer seems to be David. The whole world, it seems, has turned against David. But David, instead of fretting, David rests and feasts and rejoices. David has solace in good friends. He's got good food out here in the wilderness. He's got God's providence hanging over him. He's okay. Remember what I said at the beginning. It's not just the events of our lives, the things that happen to us. It's not just the things that other people do to us that dictate to us our moods, our feelings, our responses, our behaviors. It's not just that. It, it, we, we, are, we are adding our own story. We're adding our own narrative, our own theology to those things to produce our, our responses. We are not passive we are not powerless victims to whatever comes our way. Surely Ahithophel was responsible for the spot he was in because of his bad choice to go with Absalom. But he was also, at the same time, there are other things that were outside of his control that he was not, that he was not culpable for. I mean, God was subverting, God was subverting his counsel. So our, our theology... Our, our theology, our belief about what is up and what is down, our narrative of the world takes the events around us and works to make sense of them, and, and that's what produces our response. Let me ask a couple of questions. Would you agree that you are almost never in control of the things that happen to you in the world around you? You are almost never in control of the world around you. Would you agree that you are not in control? I think we would all nod our head and say, yes, we are not in control. Would you agree that we do have control over what we believe and how we think and how we choose to process the events and the people around us? Yes, I do have control over the way I think about those things, about the story through which I filter these events. So while we're not responsible for all the stuff that comes at us, we are responsible for right thinking and right responding. Now, there are all kinds of physical, emotional, cultural, environmental impairments, all kinds of things that keep us from right thinking and right responding. But God has given us resources and strength to overcome those impairments too. The point is that we never do this alone. We can't do this alone. So while we don't know everything that was going on with Ahithophel when he made this choice to take his own life, we can gather from what we have that in his despair, in the face of defeat, he has allowed himself to, to be pushed into a place by his own feelings about what's going on, by his own narrative. He's allowed himself to be pushed into a place where he believes that the taking of his own life is the only option left to him. You see, he's not cornered by the events. He's cornered by his own processing of these events. And he convinces himself that, that hanging himself is all that's left to do. There's no other way out. And Judas was in the same spot. Judas allowed his grief and despair over sins that he was completely responsible for 
But, but he allowed that to push him emotionally to a place that he believed that taking his own life was the only option. Now, I want to be careful as, as we read this again through the millennia. I want to be sure that, that we don't make some kind of harsh, severe judgment because we don't know everything. And anytime I hear of someone taking their own life, my first thought isn't, what a coward. I don't think what a loser. I don't think, well, there's somebody who couldn't handle life or somebody who couldn't handle their business. My first thought goes to sympathizing with the great pain and distress that they must have felt to get them to that point. We, we don't speak in such a way that we're discrediting the reality uh, or the intensity of a person's distress. The pain that they feel is real. The, the voice of despair, the voice of hopelessness is real. But at the same time, we are not bound, we are not obligated to accept the voice of despair and, and accept its message as our only authority because that voice of despair is broken. Its interpretation of events is not the only interpretation. And where it leads us to hurt ourselves or to make irreversible final decisions, that voice of despair must be rebuked by the scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I, I didn't plan on preaching on suicide today, but that's what happens when you go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, is that you come across subjects like this. And when you do, when you come up across a little verse like this, that this man, Ahithophel, he saw that his vice was not followed. He saddled a donkey. He arose and went home to his house, to his city. He put his household in order and he hanged himself and he died. He was buried in his father's tomb. When you read something like this, it's important not to skip over it, especially when it speaks to a real serious defect in our society. Suicide always ranks in the top 10 causes of death in the United States. It's always in the top 10 year after year. And men are three and a half times more likely than women to commit suicide. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for white males aged 25 to 44. And white males account for seven out of 10 suicides. Now, I'm not saying that it's just a male or a white male problem, but there are a lot of white males in this room. And if I take, that, if I take those statistics and I apply them to this room, that indicates to me that there are probably some men, women and young people as well, but likely some men who have, who have gone to this dark place in their mind who have thought and have felt cornered like Ahithophel felt cornered, like Judas felt cornered. Again, it's not just men, it's not just males. There are millions of people who are listening to the voice of despair and the voice of sorrow and hopelessness, people who don't have that competing voice of hope that they're following. And so they follow that, hope, that, that voice of despair all the way to self-destruction. It is a real, present, close danger to any of us. Now, if we were able to speak to everybody, if we were able to get through to them and speak hope to them, we would say this. We would say there is no problem so big, there's no problem so ominous that we can't find some way to bring glory and redemption and deliverance out of this. Now, there may not be a fix. Some problems can't be fixed. Terminal cancer can't be fixed. If you lose an arm, you can't grow it back. If you lose a loved one, you can't bring them back. 
God doesn't promise to fix all of our problems, but there is always, there is always a righteous response to problems. There is always to give God glory and to be sanctified and to bless and serve others in the middle of great tribulation and sorrow. God may not deliver you from the tribulation or sorrow, but there is always a righteous response to bring God glory in the middle of sorrow and tribulation. And that's the voice of hope that, that people need to hear to counteract and to compete against that voice of despair. Well, we can't get to everybody, and I can't talk to everybody in their deep despair, but I can get to you, and I can communicate to you. And so I want you to listen to me. Everyone, it's very possible, it's very likely that there are folks in this room who can sympathize with Ahithophel's decision. You know what it's like to feel cornered and feel alone and to feel hopeless and to think there is no way out of this mess. There is no way out of this sadness. And maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you've thought through not just the vague possibility of taking your own life, but you have imagined how all of this plays out. You, you know the place and the time and the means, and you've thought it all out. You're to this step where Ahithophel uh, sets his household in order. You're already there mentally because you've already worked this all out to that point. You've worked out the scenario. Well, you need to hear a few things, and I need you to listen to me. If that's where you are, or if you know someone who may be there, discouragement is a common experience. Of course, Ahithophel was discouraged. He was sad. We all go through times of darkness and difficulty. We all feel times of sadness. That's normal. You expect to feel sadness in the wake of loss or pain or frustrating circumstances. Sadness is even healthy. How many Psalms are about processing and dealing with sadness? But we don't get to the self-destructive point by simply being sad. This is, this is something we need to clarify and understand that, that there's, there's something different here. It's not just sadness. One Christian counselor describes suicidal thoughts this way. He describes it as a, a downward progression beginning with intense disappointment that ultimately leads to despair and destructive choices if a person is without hope to get out of the pit of despair. That's where it begins. It begins with disappointment that is unchecked, undealt with, unmanaged, unhelp, unhelped, whether it's guilt or sorrow or fear or anxiety, and it festers and it grows and, it, and you continue to descend into such a place of despair that then you have no hope that you're ever going to get out. And that certainly was Ahithophel's spot. Uh, I wonder, what was that first disappointment? Remember, for him... He was Bathsheba's grandfather. He was David's closest advisor. Did he stand right next to David as David plots this whole seduction of Bathsheba, the murder of her husband? Does, does, does Hittophel feel a great sense of guilt and bitterness over those events? Did he, was he never able to let it go? And so when Absalom came up, he took the opportunity to say, I'm going to do this to get back at to get back at David. Now, if Solomon is Bathsheba's uh, son, remember, uh, this is also undercutting his own future. So, so deep is his, his own anger that, that he goes against his own grandson to go with Absalom to get back at David. Uh, again, we can't tell the psychology of what's going on here through the millennia, but it seems that there would be that very same, that, that intense disappointment that ultimately leads to despair. So if any of this describes you, 
If anything I've said, you say, yeah, I can relate to that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, above everything else, will you come talk to me? Will you, will, will you grab me by the arm? Will you text me? Will you call me? Will you say, you know, um, we need to talk? Men, especially, don't be too proud to talk. And if you don't want to talk to me, grab an elder, grab a deacon, grab a brother, grab a sister, grab somebody else and say, please, I need you to, to, to talk to me and help me through this. Isolation is deadly. Isolation is deadly. Ahithophel left town, got away from everybody. Judas got away from everybody. He went out by himself. When Saul took his own life, Saul didn't have anybody around him who could speak truth to him. Nobody. Saul was completely cut off. They were isolated and they were alone and they were cut off from any avenue of help. So talk. Grab me. Talk to me. I'm here for you and I love you and I want to help you. And I'm not thinking, oh, wow, you're a, you're a basket case. Wow, what a mess here. No, no, that's not it at all. But if you can't bring yourself to talk, then, then hear me now, because I'm going to say something like this to you and we'll have more time to talk through it. But, but if you can't bring yourself to talk to me, then listen to me. First of all, there is no problem that you're experiencing right now, and I say this with all confidence, there is no problem that is too big or too messy that it is impossible for you to have a godly, righteous response to it. Again, there is no problem that's too big for you that we can't find a righteous, redemptive response that brings God glory out of it. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You can bear it. You feel like you can't. I just can't. I can't do this. I can't make myself do it. I can't do it. Yes, you can. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives and abides in you. You can do it. You can't do it alone. I'll give you that. No, you can't do it alone. But God will not give you something that you cannot find a way out of. He says, I will give you a way of escape. God promises victory not from your problems, but victory in the midst of your problems. And there is always a way to work things out. You may not be able to find that way on your own you probably won't be able to find that way on your own if you are in the pit of despair right now. You probably are not going to be able to find it, which is why you need to speak up and you need to talk to me or talk to somebody. But there is always a way out of despair. That's the first thing you need to know. Secondly, one of the reasons we get into this pit of despair is that we are so completely focused on ourselves, on our own problems, analyzing ourselves, analyzing every word, every social interaction, every word of that last email, every word of that last text, consumed by our own emotions and our own problems. Ahithophel was completely focused on his own reputation. Nobody's going to listen to me anymore, so I might as well just go take my life. Saul was completely consumed by his own reputation. Remember Abimelech, who was hit in the head by a millstone as he lay on the battlefield and took his own life. He didn't want anybody to know that he'd been killed by a woman, so consumed with himself. David, in contrast, has been injured to a much greater degree than Ahithophel. But David is out here in the wilderness caring for his own men, caring for their families, putting the kingdom ahead of himself. David is focused outward. 
The best medicine to getting out of this pit of despair is to stop worrying about yourself and get outside of your own head and go and serve somebody and go love somebody else. That's the way out. That's one of the ways out, but it's, it's, it's the way out. Thirdly, understand the source of this hopelessness. Why is it that you see no way out of your problem and the only exit sign you see is your own death? Again, it's not the thing that happened to you. It's your interpretation of the thing, the thoughts and the emotions and the story, the narrative that you brought to it. Listen to Psalm 27. David says, I would have despaired. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Wait on Yahweh, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What David gives us here is not just this naive outlook that says, everything's wonderful all the time. It's all great. Everything's just fine right now. I just need to, I just need to whistle a tune and put on rose-colored glasses and everything's fine. That's not what David's saying. What David is expressing is this patient, tenacious faith that says, I can't see the goodness of Yahweh right now. I can't see it. I don't see it, but I believe I will see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living, that I will see it here and now in the world, in creation. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. The goodness of God is my reason for living. I would have despaired, he says, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Hope says, and the promise of the gospel and the Christian message is that you may not see that things are all ironed out now. No, things are rough. Things are ugly. Things are desperate. Things are perverse. But the Christian hope is that we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You will see it. So wait on the Lord. What did Ahithophel miss by not waiting? Well, in just a few years, his grandson Absalom is going to become king. Here's Ahithophel who's lauded as the wisest man in the, in the land. And then his, his great-grandson, it's his great-grandson Solomon, is now going to be king. And what sweet, wonderful times they could have had together, sharing and, and rejoicing and exulting in the wisdom of God. How much, how much could he have better equipped Solomon? How much could he have better guarded and counseled Solomon? But he wasn't there. He was gone. He missed out on all of that. He didn't wait to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. He took himself out of the picture. And he didn't get to see all the great things that could have been had he not taken that step. Oh, boy, I, I honestly, I didn't want to talk about this today. I hope you understand that. Like, this is rough. This is difficult stuff. But I also feel and, and believe that we ought to talk about this as God's people that we ought not just put it behind us and pretend like it doesn't exist. Thoughts of self-destruction come through our heads at various times, and we all have to deal with them, and we have to respond righteously to them. One of the ways that we respond to this is by talking to each other and getting strength and counsel from each other. Do not stiff-arm the help and the counsel that God has put in your life. Please come talk to someone and rejoice and know this hope that we can share together that I will see goodness. I will see goodness in the land of living, the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that 
uh, if there is anyone in this room who, like Ahitophel, feels cornered and so sorrowful and so desperate that they're out of choices, Father, I pray that you would comfort them with your Holy Spirit, give them peace, and then give them the strength by your Holy Spirit to speak up and to talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to an elder. Talk to someone. Man or woman, boy or girl, anyone. Uh, Father, we pray that you would um, heal them and help us all to respond correctly in the midst of sorrow. Give us that strength, we pray. Give us that clarity. Help us to fit ourselves into your story in such a way that we we don't allow disappointment to grow into bitterness and hatefulness, uh, but that we grow through it and are sanctified in the process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.